Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, in this episode, we're going to start a new doctrine, well, one related anyway to the previous week on the reliability of the New Testament and its manuscripts. So, as we covered last week, the manuscripts themselves are extremely secure, especially compared to any other ancient document. But what about the canon? In other words, the collection of 27 books that make up the New Testament. We know that the documents themselves are reliable, but how do we know that we got all of them? Is it possible that there is a book that belongs in the New Testament somewhere that didn't make it in? Or is it possible that there is a book in the New Testament that just doesn't belong there? That's going to be our topic for discussion over the course of this week as we move past the manuscripts and into the adoption of the canon itself. Now, some would point to several church councils which happened in the late 300s. Those would be the Council of Hippo in 393 AD and the Council of Carthage in 397 as the first time that quote-unquote scripture was recognized as authoritative or that was canonized. But the truth is that the process of collecting and collating the books that we call the New Testament into the New Testament was a much more organic process. And it started way back during the lifetimes of the apostles themselves. We see this in several examples right in Scripture. Paul actually refers to one of Luke's writings as Scripture. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes two verses. And the first part of what he quotes comes from Deuteronomy 25, 4, which obviously would have been considered scripture by Paul and anyone else reading Paul. But the other part that he quotes comes from Luke 10, 7, and it's only found there in the New Testament, which not only means that Paul was aware of Luke's writings and that the gospel of Luke must predate uh, 1 Timothy, But it also means that Paul considered Luke's writings scripture as well, because Paul says as a blanket statement about both of these verses, as the scripture says. Peter also considered Paul's writings scripture. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he refers to how difficult some of Paul's writings are to understand. He refers to them as scripture in passing, as are the other scriptures, he says. We know that there were New Testament books circulating throughout the churches and that these weren't just occasional letters by Paul written to specific churches, but even if they were, there were sometimes instructions included to make these circular letters that would be transported and read in various churches. We see examples of this in Colossians 4.16 and in 1 Thessalonians 5.27. And so there were examples, again, within the New Testament of letters being written to one church saying, this is good for all of you. You all need to hear this. So let's let's make sure that this makes the rounds. 
And what we see moving even past the lives of the apostles is that the earliest church fathers recognized some of the books that we have in our New Testament as Scripture. And obviously there was discussion and debate over what books should be considered Scripture and shouldn't because, and we'll get into this in future episodes this week, there's actually more that the early church was using beyond just what we have as the New Testament. Not only were the earliest churches not using the whole New Testament because, well, the whole New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was being written as they were doing life and being the church. But also that there was some disagreement among early church fathers as to whether or not certain books, which the church pretty universally considered helpful, should also be considered scripture. So what we see, though, as a, as a direct contradiction against this notion that the Bible as we have it was not really in existence until the late 300s is something called the Moratorian Fragment. And this is a document, it's actually a piece of a document because it's a fragment, that dates to around 170 AD. And what we see is as early as 170 AD, every New Testament book except for Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter and Third John are included in the list. And it's possible that they were in there somewhere because, again, this is a fragment, so we don't have the entire document. But what we can say is that as early as 170 AD, what we consider the New Testament was almost complete way back then. And then what you see is that by 363, in something known as the Council of Laodicea, everything except the book of Revelation was considered scripture at that point. And so by 363, you have 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament recognized as scripture. Now, how did these decisions get made? Well, there were four criteria that were used during these discussions and that sort of came out at these council discussions and meetings about how to decide whether or not something should be considered authoritative scripture, or whether it would just be considered helpful. And these four criteria are as follows. A letter or book needed to be written by an apostle or by a close associate of an apostle. So preferably someone who had seen and interacted with Jesus, either before or after his resurrection, because Paul would certainly count in here based on his Damascus Road experience, or a close associate, someone who traveled with and and witnessed firsthand some of the things that went on in Acts. And so people like John Mark, the author of Mark, or Luke, would fall into this category, not apostles themselves, but close associates of apostles. Another criteria was that it had to be something that was already accepted and used by the church at large. And so it wasn't just a little known or rarely heard of document. It was something that was well known and established within the churches. And it was something they were already reading and circulating and using for their sanctification. The third criteria is that it had to contain doctrine or teaching that was orthodox and that was consistent with past teaching in Scripture. So it certainly couldn't contradict the Old Testament, and it couldn't contradict any of Jesus' teachings or anything else that had been recognized as Scripture up to that point. 
And so they were looking for consistency and maintaining the teaching that God had already given to his people and just expounding upon it or adding clarity to what was already there. And then the last criteria was that it needed to be reflective of something that the Holy Spirit would produce. I think one of the church fathers mentions it it needs to have a certain spiritual and moral character to it that would uh, that would indicate that this was a work of the Holy Spirit. And obviously that is somewhat subjective, but in hindsight, I think we would look at what is there as scripture and we would agree that that uh, that is the case. So here's a question I want to leave you with, because this is something that can cause a lot of concern for people as they as they ponder whether or not we got it right when it comes to the canon. If you believe that God was sovereign over scripture's production, that everything in the original text was God-breathed and inspired, then God is also more than capable of being sovereign over scripture's transmission and its recognition. God is not sovereign over one thing and not sovereign over another. So, so that's a little peek behind the curtain as to what we're going to be looking at more in depth this week. I hope that you'll continue to join us as we explore the formation and recognition of the canon in future Fruit Snacks episodes. 